All right, if we can start making our way back to our seats. And I'm going to ask Trent if he'll come up and read our scripture reading for us. evening. The 15th chapter of Luke, starting with the 11th verse. <clears throat> and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And, divide, and he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had took and took a journey far away to another country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose and in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here for hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And he said to his son, or his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this day my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commandment, but you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when, his, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead. And he is alive. He was lost. And he is found. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we ask that you uh, bless the, the reading, God, the hearing, um, God, the expounding upon your word. We ask that uh, as, we, as we look at this text, which we have uh, uh, delved into over the last two weeks, God, that you will... Um, uh, show us new places um, that you will open up our our eyes and hearts to to um, further insights as we look at this text as we expound on all the different um, God kernels of truth and 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 beams of light that it shines on our hearts and on uh, the gospel on on your character and and just so many facets of our faith. Father, we ask that your spirit would do work in our hearts as we read this, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be convicted by it, and that you would use it to make us more like your son. 
God, we, as we often do, God, we pray for, for our brother and sister churches in Blunt County. God, we pray for, um, the ministries that they are about and, and putting their time and energy into. God, we ask for favor and blessing, um, for every church in our community, um, that on a weekly basis is, is preaching your word, um, uh, focusing on Jesus Christ and, and offering the gospel to our community. Um, we ask that you would bless them. We ask that, that they would, as a church, be stalwart in, in their belief, um, God, in their, in, in making your word and the gospel central. God, we ask for kindness and gentleness and love and winsomeness on the part of their, their people as they share with neighbors and coworkers and, uh, family members and God, as they, uh, extend the gospel to others. Um, we ask for your spirit to go before us, to till up the soil, um, to, to bring the, the, the metaphorical rain, um, that will enable the growth, God, that you would protect, um, people as they come to know you and are growing in the faith and God, that you would, um, give nutrients to those, um, growing faith so that they could bear fruit. Uh, we thank you for all the work that you do in our lives on a daily basis and for the things that we do not even notice. Um, we thank you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, you guys know, as is probably the case in many sermons before, that, that one of my favorite movies, um, not The Lord of the Rings this time, but um, The Prince's Bride. Love The Prince's Bride. We all know what the best line from from the Princess Bride is, and that is the whole bit where the guy keeps on saying, this thing is inconceivable, this thing is inconceivable, and finally, and Diego Montoya says, this word inconceivable, I do not think it means what you think it means, okay? Well, I, I should do that as a little sort of setup because of the word prodigal, okay? And maybe I'm different than you, but I think it could probably be said that for many of us, the word prodigal, I do not think it means what you think it means. At least that's who it, how it was for me, because I'll be honest, until a few years ago, if you had asked me, what does the word prodigal mean? I would have said, well, it means to be rebellious, to turn away from um, something, faith or family or, or something, and, and walk away from it, and, and that's what prodigal means, okay? Now, maybe your vocabulary is better than mine. And maybe that is not something that you did yourself, but that's not what prodigal means at all. It's not even close to the definition of what prodigal means. The, the, the reality is, is I think for many people, the word prodigal is so connected with the story of the prodigal son that we have started to think that the word prodigal means the same thing as what happens in the story. It's a story about a guy who walks away and he's the prodigal son, and so it must mean that's what prodigal means. Except that's not what the word means. The word prodigal means this. Dictionary definition. Spending money or resources freely and recklessly. Wastefully extravagant. And the second definition, having or giving something on a lavish scale. Okay? That's what the word prodigal means. Now, some of you might be like, yeah, no joke, Ash. I knew that. Um, you know, I took the SAT or whatever. Um I didn't know that, okay? And so, again, if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have not known what the word prodigal meant. I would have thought it was connected more to the story, but I realize it is connected to the story, but in a different way. But it's on account of that actual definition of the word prodigal that some people have suggested, Tim Keller among them, because of the book that we mentioned last week, that maybe the best title for this story is not so much the prodigal son, but the prodigal God, and in fact, that's what I think we see in this passage from several angles. We see a prodigal God, a God who spends his resources freely, even some might say recklessly, wastefully extravagant. That word wasteful seems a little wrong. Um, having or giving something on a lavish scale. We have a God who has done that. We have a God who is prodigal. Now, notice again, go back to the text, and we're going to kind of zoom in on the father for a few minutes um, because we've already talked about the younger son and the older son, although we're not done with either of those characters. 
But the passage says this. It says, while he was still a long way off, this is after the younger son has recognized his sin and he has started to come at home. It says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Okay, now notice a couple things. We don't often notice things that are a long way off. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that every once in a while you'll be somewhere and and you catch a glimpse of a scene or something, you know, out past over the skyline of your house or or down a road and you look off to the horizon and all of a sudden you realize, you know, I've never noticed that you can see the mountains from here or that you can see, you know, some building in town from here. I've never noticed those things. I was at my house and I was pulling down my, like the street of my house. And the other day I looked up and I could see a cell tower and I went, I've never noticed that you can see the cell tower. It was a little annoying to me, right? I was like, you've ruined the view of me coming into my house by putting this big cell tower there. But the reason is, is because I never looked to the horizon, right? Just looking to the road to make sure I don't hit some kid that's running around or something like that, okay? So that's how our, our vision usually is. And so you say, this father notices his son when he's still a long way off. Why would that be? Well, there's only one reason for it. Because the father has been sitting, waiting watching, expectantly, hoping that his son would return. That his eye has been on the horizon probably since he left, praying that one day he would see his son come over that hilltop. The Bible tells us God's longing for his people's return. We read it in our call to worship passage today. In Ezekiel It's said like this, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Right? That's the heart of the Lord to say, God is not sitting there excited about the judgment that he is going to bring. Okay? He is yearning for the return of those who were lost. And as soon as he recognizes his son on the horizon, it says he ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. Now, here's a couple of things that we notice even then that are pictures of the prodigal nature of God, even in those words. Okay. Number one, it is, it's uncharacteristic or in two things, it's uncharacteristic of, uh, in terms of Eastern culture. The first thing is this elders don't run anywhere. Okay. Dignified elders elders don't run places. They are at the top of the social ladder. They are at the top of things in terms of respect and deference. People run to them. They act calmly and collectively as people come to them. And yet, what do we see this father doing? He is running. He is desperate to get to his son, to see him, to talk to him, to embrace him. He throws off all social convention to pour out his his care and concern towards his son. And then the second thing is this. When he finds his son and gets to him, it says he embraces him. And again, you might say, well, so what? That's Wouldn't, wouldn't every father who hadn't seen his son in a long time do that? And the answer is no, they wouldn't. There's literally in, in the Hebrew tradition particularly, but in Eastern cultures, there is literally a protocol for how you behave when a a son who has walked away and dishonored the family returns. There's a whole thing that you go through. We can we can look in ancient um, Near Eastern documents and see the way these things play out. And they don't begin with a father blubbering, crying, slinging, and falling on his son. The literal word is that he fell on his neck, right? The idea that he is holding him and supporting his own weight on the body of his child because he is so happy to see him. He is pouring grace on him and acceptance prodigally. Notice again, the running, the embracing, um, the kiss that he gives him all happen before the son can even repent to his father. Certainly, we know that his heart has changed because we've read the whole story. But what happens is when he sees his father, his father embraces him and he's hugging him and he's kissing him and he says, he starts to try to say his spiel that he's sort of memorized. Father, I'm, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. And he tries to say it, but the father will have none of it. It doesn't matter anymore. The father knows his son's heart. That's why the son is returned. It's all behind them now. It's water under the bridge. There's no grudge. There's no holding anything over him. He's just happy that his son has returned. 
here's the deal, man. An attitude like that cannot happen when you have been like the older brother has been in the story. When you have nursed a grudge the entire time, when you have grown in your resentment over something, when somebody shows back up, this is not the way you act. But the father who has been heartbroken since his son left, who has wanted nothing more than to see his son return to the family, he is ready to pour out grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy to him in a prodigal fashion, in an extravagant fashion. Then the father says, before he can, the son can even get these things out, the father calls for a servant. And he bestows these, in, in the passage, three gifts on the son. The, the best robe, a ring, and sandals. A robe that would have been a special robe for honored guests. It would have been the father's formal um, robe for, for ceremonial occasions. And yet he bestows it on his son. The ring which may or may not be, but we can surmise that it was his signet ring. It was a sign and a symbol of the father's authority, indicating that his son has been received back, was now an official representative of his family. He was in good standing with his father and could now conduct business on his father's behalf and be an official representative of the family. Some commentators suggest that even the sandals that he gives him are actually a picture of the fact that sandals for many people were a luxury item. To say that if you were a servant in the household, you might not have sandals, but but uh, but but family members um, would have sandals. And so it's a picture of possibly even saying, even though the son is coming back to say, I just I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I just want to be a servant. The father is immediately saying, you're not going to be a servant in my house. You are going to be a welcomed son, and everything is going to be um, forgiven and back to normal. Now, here's one thing. At various times in church history, when, when people have read this passage, they have attempted to allegorize it. That is, they've attempted to go through each of these things, you know, the kiss, the hug, the ring, the sandals, the robe, and assign specific spiritual meaning to them, right? That this is the salvation and this is our sanctification and whatever. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that's what we're supposed to take from this. But what I do think is meant to happen is all these pieces and gifts together are supposed to indicate a complete and unconditional return and restoration of the son. Okay? It is God's prodigal, extravagant outpouring of mercy and grace on this child who had walked away. Now, here's the deal. This restoration, as we would expect from the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, are a cause for celebration, right? We saw that in the other two parables. When they found the thing that was lost, they threw a party both times. And the father does the same thing. He calls for the fattened calf. And the fattened calf is killed and cooked. If you were a well-off family, you would have a cow, a calf, just waiting in the wings, which is a really sad job for that calf, right? But just waiting in the wings, being specially cared for, specially fed, so that it was prepared for if you ever had a thing that you had to celebrate and have a big party for, the fattened calf would be ready. And we're talking about big celebrations, the wedding of a son, the birth of an heir, the coronation of a king or something like that. It would be saved for the most important kind of event. And the father breaks out the fattened calf. Why? Because his son who was dead is alive again. His son who was lost has been returned to him. All of it pointing to, what does it point to? While the younger son was prodigal in his wastefulness and sin, the father is prodigal in his mercy. The father is prodigal in his grace to those who return. And it's important to note that he doesn't just extend that kind of prodigal grace to the younger son, but he extends it to the older son too, right? Do you notice that? When we get to the end of the story, he is prodigally inviting the older brother into the party as well. In a culture like ours where we have younger brother types always blaming older brother types, and older brother types always bl blaming younger brother types as we have a culture that liberals are blaming conservatives and conservatives are blaming liberals. What we notice in the scripture is that the father is calling both to repent 
and both to come into the party. Okay. There's not one group that he says, ah, oh, well, you're the real bad guy. And, and this guy over here, I'm going to forgive him, but you, you're the, that's not what happens. He says, I want both of my sons who have sinned in different ways and been obedient in different ways. I want both of you to come into the party. Why? Because my mercy is prodigal. Whether you're a legalist or a libertine, whether you're unrighteous or self-righteous, God says, come home and join the celebration. He is extravagant in forgiveness and reconciliation. In blessing, Psalm 84 says, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Okay? That is the nature of our God. Not a stingy holder back who's, who's holding our sin over our head, but one who is graciously loving, forgiving, and receiving us back. Now here's the deal. This is the kind of the gear shift a little bit. I used the word at the beginning of prodigal God, even though up until this point, we've only been talking about a prodigal father in the story. But I used the term prodigal God for a very specific reason, because it's not just the father who is prodigal. So let me set up this scene. So we talked the other day about how you can see the, 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 the point, the focus of the parables by comparing each of the parables and notice what they left out. You remember that conversation where we talked about the fact that in the parable of the lost sheep, what do we see? Something is lost. Something is found. There's a celebration. In the lost coin, something is lost. Something is found. There's a celebration. Parable of the prodigal son, something is lost. Something is found. There's a celebration. And somebody gets mad. And so he said, see, that fact that there's something unique in the story points us in a direction. Something we're supposed to draw attention to, to say, the problem here is the older son. That's what the, the, the instigation of this parable is about. But here's something I did the other day. I left out another piece. Because that's not the only difference that we're supposed to draw our attention to. Because here's what you notice when you go back and look at those two passages. The lost sheep and the lost coin is it goes more something like this. Something is lost, a diligent search is made, something is found, everybody celebrates. Something is lost, a diligent search is made, something is found, everybody celebrates. Then you get to the story of the prodigal son. And what happens? Something is lost, but then all of a sudden it stops. And there is no search made for the prodigal. Nobody goes out looking for him, and we're supposed to notice that. It is a glaring thing missing when you compare these three parables. Now, what do we see instead? In it, we see when the younger son walks away, the, sh the shift is that we're not focused so much on the person that goes to look for him, but instead his own inner struggle. Right, And so we learn about the fact that he's in the pigsty, he spent all his money, and that he's finally come to grips with his sin, and he's made the decision to go home and, and that whole process. That's the part that we see, his own personal struggle. But just as the additional element of somebody getting mad focused us in a certain way, the leaving out of that diligent search does something as well. Because here's the deal. As we read in those first two parables, the father has shown that he deeply cares about the lost. Remember what we said the first week? He leaves the 99 behind in the open field to go find the one. He puts everything on hold to sweep the house clean. He puts all his other chores and responsibilities on hold until he finds that coin that is lost. And yet, when we come to the story of the prodigal son, why is there no search made for the younger son? Why doesn't somebody go after him? Well, the question that we should probably ask ourselves is, who should go after him? Probably not the father. We just talked about the dignified responsibility of fathers in terms of these things. You know who probably should have gone after the Younger brother, the older brother should have gone after him. The older brother should have gone out to search after his younger brother. As soon as we think of that concept, our mind is thrown back to all kinds of stories in the Old Testament. 
in Sunday school right now with the youth, we're talking about Genesis. And we've just recently done um, the story of Cain and Abel. And what happens after Cain has murdered his brother, God comes and approaches him. And what does he say? What does he say to Cain? He says, Cain, where is your brother? And what does Cain says? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know what the answer is? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for him in a unique way, okay? Particularly because he is your brother, but to a very real extent, the way all of us as individuals are responsible for the care and, and safety of those around us, the people who are in, in fellowship and relationship with us. But it's not just that story. I think of the story of Joseph, and you remember when his brothers all betray him um, and and plot to kill him, but then eventually decide, well, we won't kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery in Egypt. And at the beginning, this this horrible thing has happened, and, and they've played off to their elderly father that the son is dead. And he's been sent into slavery in Egypt. And yet, when we get to the other end of the story, there has obviously been a change of heart, at least with some of the brothers. Because when the situation happens where Simeon has been held by by Joseph in disguise in Egypt, and then now it's time to go back. The family has to go back and get more grain, but they've already said we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin with us. You remember what happens? The brother Judah, Judah, who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ, says, Father, if you will put Benjamin in my care, I will go and get Simeon back, and I'll get Benjamin back to you, and you won't lose anybody. And I promise that no matter what happens, if I fail, you can have my children. The sin can be on my head. The blood, the guilt can be on my head. I'll put it all on me. I'm willing to do that, to go keep the safety of Benjamin and to bring back Simeon into the fold. Now, here's the thing, and we should be fair. On the one side, when we live in bitterness and estrangement like the older brother has in this story, that kind of attitude is impossible. But at the same time, we should be fair. We might be tempted to look at the father's welcoming in this story, the reception that he made for the younger brother, the younger son. And, and when we look at that and we notice that the father in his, his welcoming, gracious, prodigal mercy, we might look to that situation and say, well, see, forgiveness and welcome and grace and mercy, they cost nothing. They are free gifts of God. That it required nothing on the son's part except to repent and come home. And while the son certainly had repented in his heart, he doesn't even get a chance to express that to the father before the father runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. And again, if we're reading this wrongly, we might surmise by that that reconciliation, that the grace, that mercy is free of cost. But here's the deal. There is a tremendous cost to that grace and mercy. And notice who bore that cost. Even in the story that we have, the father didn't bear that cost. The older brother bore the cost. We touched briefly on it last week, but in the story, everything that the father now owns belongs to the older son. Anything that it costs to get the younger son back to the father is actually costing the older brother. Every cent of it. The robe, the ring, the sandals, the fatted calf, ultimately they are all costing the older brother something. If a celebration is to be had, if restoration of the younger brother is to take place, it will be at the older brother's expense. So in our parable, the self-righteous, bitter older brother has refused to do that. He's refused to go after his brother. Now that his brother is back, he refuses to welcome him. He resents his return. He will not go into the party that celebrates him. What we are missing in this parable is someone to diligently search after the lost and someone to personally bear the cost of bringing the lost younger brother back into readmittance into the family. So here's the deal. To fix the problem of a prodigal younger brother, we need a prodigal father, but we also need a prodigal older brother. 
We need an older brother who spends extravagantly for his people, does something that almost seems wasteful in hindsight. Jesus is that older brother that we're looking for. Jesus leaves the glories of heaven to go on a a search and rescue mission for humanity, for his younger brother who has gone astray. He leaves home. He enters into his brother's mess. He follows him and finds him in the pigsty. He picks him up. He brings him out of it. And at what cost? At no cost to him? No. For Jesus Christ, it costs him everything. Jesus extravagantly pours out his life in service and sacrifice to redeem and restore his younger brother. And so the parable becomes this beautiful picture in the, of the gospel in both what it says to us, but also in the thing that it leaves out that we then recognize that we need. We get this incredible glimpse of who we are in the persons of the younger son and the older son. We get this incredible glimpse of who the father is in his grace and mercy shown to the younger brother and the older brother too. And we get this incredible picture of the older brother that we all need. Now there's nothing wrong with with getting caught up in, in the beautiful picture that we see of the gospel in this passage. And man, it's central. Like I told y'all a couple weeks ago, between this passage and the passage, the parable of the four soils, man, that sums up a whole lot of my understanding of God and Jesus and salvation and ministry and the church and and everything. Okay. There's so much depth and beauty and gospel picture in this passage. And it's okay to look at that. It's okay to focus on all the nuggets and nuance that we can get out of it. But here's the thing also. I think we need to do what we did the first week. We need to return to what the passage is mainly about. It's about an older brother who is angry and resentful at his younger brother particularly when that younger brother comes home. And Jesus gives us a picture of what a better older brother would look like, an ultimate older brother would look like. But the question is still put to all of us who are acting as older brothers. God demonstrates that he doesn't have an older brother attitude, at least not the older brother in the story. On the contrary, he he is extravagantly merciful to those who rebelled against him and walked away. He is passionately concerned and diligent with seeking them out. He is ultimately committed to paying whatever price is necessary to redeem them. And he is ecstatic with joy at their return of the lost to the family and to the fold. And so here's the question, I think. The whole parable is saying, God is looking to us and saying, why aren't you? Why do you not share my mercy, my passion, my commitment, my joy at these things? Why do you treat the gospel like the message of, as as Russell Moore says it, that you, you treat the gospel like it's the message of, hey, you kids, get off my lawn. That's the kind of older brother thing to say. I said it the first week, man, I've got an older brother heart in me. i got a whole lot of older brother in me resentment towards the foolishness of the world, good riddance mentality. And Jesus is speaking to me in this passage. He's saying, why is your heart not the heart of the Father? More importantly, why are you not acting as the older brother to go and win and find the lost? Now, here's the deal. Nobody can replace Jesus' role. That's not what we're talking about. We're not saying that he is calling us to be older brothers to replace Jesus. Jesus does an ultimate older brother role that we can never do through his life, death, and resurrection, through the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And yet, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, if we are going to seek the lost... His searching and sacrifice that we see in the gospel, we have to live that out on a level as well. 
If you want to walk with Jesus, you have to walk Jesus' way on these things. And I think the church has woefully been negligent in that job. I have been negligent in that job. As we have squabbled over the 99 that remain, and as we've swapped sheep and gone back and forth and been angry at other people taking the sheep out of our 99 instead of going to look for not the one, because at this point, it's not the one who's lost anymore, right? It is the millions in our community, the tens of thousands that are lost. Instead of going to find them, we stay with the 99. So, yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is. Other than that we have to take the gospel to the lost. We have to acknowledge that for me to go to the lost is going to cost me something. It is every single time. I don't know what it'll cost me. Maybe cost me time, energy, reputation, but it's going to cost something. It costs Jesus something to come to find his lost siblings. And it's going to cost us something to go to the lost. Jesus is calling us to that. He's calling us to be the older brothers, the elder sisters, um, as we passionately care about bringing the lost home. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And again, I guarantee that every single one of us is dealing with this on a different level. There are some of us in here who are thinking of one person right now who your heart is, is uh, tied up in knots about because of they've acted like a younger brother and they've walked away and you live in resentment towards that person. But I bet there's some people in here too who are mad at their older brothers too, who are old, mad at the, the self-righteousness and the, um, the, the, the stiff arm kind of attitude that they have received from older brother types. But the reality is, is if an older brother is acting in a sinful way, then suddenly you become the older brother and have to go seek after that younger brother, right? You can almost think about it as an issue of maturity. Older and younger are not issues of age. They are issues of closeness to Christ. If you're the older brother, you should go after the younger, the one who has walked away in whatever way he's walked away. I know we've got those people in our lives. Some of us have got family members. Some of us have got close friends who have done those very things. And I can't, I can't, I don't know what to do. The specifics. I can't give you a formula. I can't say, man, if you just do these three things, we'll win those people back to Christ and everything will be fine. And yet I know this, we have to be, it has to be on our hearts and minds and, and concerns. We have to be seeking these things in our daily lives. We can't put them on the back burner. It is the heart of Christ to seek and save the lost. And we have to have that same heart. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and just ask God to speak into our own contexts to give us wisdom and insight, to give us, to change our hearts in many cases, to give us a more gracious, merciful, diligent, prayerful heart about all of these things, how we might be the agents um, who bring God's lost children back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you tell us in your word that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Father, when we compare it to passages like the one that we've read tonight, we recognize that the world is in need of more faithful older brothers and sisters to go after the lost younger brothers and sisters. God, we confess and regretfully admit that we have not been those faithful olders, brothers and sisters. God, that sometimes we have lived as, as 
the resentful older brother. Sometimes we have lived as the apathetic younger brother, but we have not done what you've called us to. We have not carried the heart of Christ um, and emulated the heart of Christ when it comes to the lost. God, it is difficult to do these things. We, we do not, um, it doesn't go according to plan all the time. God, if it were just a, a issue of making a phone call or showing up at somebody's door and everything would be fixed, um, maybe it would be easier and maybe we would, we would jump at those opportunities. And yet we know that that is not the case, that there will be suffering and sacrifice. There will be um, different com- com- uh, conversations and confrontations, God. There will be hurt feelings and misunderstandings. Um, God, there will be a misreading of intentions. God, there will be baggage on both sides that that complicates um, the issue of, of past hurts and things left undone, and yet none of those things negate our responsibility. And so we ask that you would help us, uh, that you would go before us, God, that the Spirit would move ahead of time to till up soil, to prepare situations and conversations, um, God, to to ordain events, um, to allow for for these things to, to, to come to fruition, um, that your spirit working, um, as, as we are in prayer about them, God, that you would work and call people back to yourself, that the lost would be found, that the dead would be raised to life. God, that all of your children would come into the party. This is our prayer. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Why should I gain 
Amen. Good to see you. Glad you're here tonight. Um, we're done with the prodigal son. Um, but I encourage you to, to if you've got time, again, we may do it in a few years. I know a couple of y'all, I think Angie maybe picked her copy back up this week. Um, but I would encourage you to read um, Tim Keller's uh, The Prodigal God. Um, it's a great book. He says it better than anything I could do, and uh, it'll be an encouragement to you. Um, down the road, maybe not next week. You don't have to read it next week, you know, uh, but maybe a couple months down the road to refresh these things in your mind and heart and to continue to, to keep our gaze and our focus on, on the calling of Christ um, in terms of the loss in our lives. Um, here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.